Hey there, listener. If you like what you hear on World Changing Women, you should join us at the Conscious Company Leaders Forum, where we bring together tons of stories like this live, in person, outside of Santa Cruz, California at 1440 Multiversity. Go to ConsciousCompanyLeadersForum.com for more information. I'm Megan French Dunbar, co-founder and CEO of Conscious Company Media, and welcome to World Changing Women. Each week, we interview some of the most badass female founders in the world to get their insights on how they've built game-changing companies that actually have a positive impact on the world. Our hope here is to inspire and help people of all backgrounds who feel like starting a business or chasing their dream is out of their reach to reconsider. We'll hear the good, the bad, and sometimes even the ugly of what it takes to start and build something incredible. And we hope that every episode will leave you inspired, hopeful, and with practical tips that will help you along your journey. Welcome to World Changing Women. And I like outcomes, and, and I believe that our mission is so important that we need the outcomes of more solar panels up, uh, you know, on more roofs. But what I've learned more over the years is to nourish the heart and the soul as well, you know, as deliver the outcomes. Lynn Jurek is on a mission to create a planet that's powered by the sun. As the CEO of Sunrun, she's helped over 200,000 people harness solar energy to power their homes. And she's grown this solar as a service model into a $3 billion enterprise, becoming the largest residential solar installer in the United States. As a business leader, Lynn discovered her personal strengths, how to stay true to the mission, and learn not to take things too seriously along the way. She was recently named one of Fortune's 40 Under 40 Most Influential People in Business. But Lynn wasn't always an entrepreneur. In fact, she left a lucrative career as a venture capitalist to pursue her venture that no investor thought would work. And as for the timing, it was in the middle of the 2008 recession. It all began in business school when her classmate and Sunrun co-founder Ed Fenster approached Lynn with an idea. He said, hey, solar is just, this technology is happening, you know? It's just one of these things back then where you felt like it was just super expensive and it powered satellites, but it was never going to be a mainstream technology. He had said, no, I've been looking into it and the prices are coming down fast enough that this could actually be viable. And just with that thesis, I jumped at it. And and, I, and I'm a pretty methodical person, so, it's, so I reflect on that and wonder, why did I jump at that? And, and it was really because I, f I feel like I had a very prepared mind to be open to it, which is just based on all sorts of my life experiences, starting from when I was a kid, you know, just loving nature and always having a personal belief, I think, given to me by my mom in particular, that... You just, there's a rhythm to nature that just soothes the soul and that it, it's just so comforting to just go out and I grew up in the trees and to go out for a walk. And, and so I've, it's always been really important to me to help preserve that. And then I, you know, was always quite, you know, competitive and I always always also found myself really being a bit of a feminist and that I wanted to always prove that women could do things just as well as men could do. So I was always attracted to sports and I played a ton of sports and in school I was, you know, attracted to making sure that I stayed on like a math and engineering and finance track in addition to some of my other interests like philosophy and art and all of that. But I always, I think, had a little bit of a competitive edge that I wanted to prove that, hey, girls can do this stuff too. And so while I was at Stanford, I was their um, undergrad. 
during the first technology boom. And so I got into entrepreneurship and technology and I had become a venture capitalist after school. And, and when it, was it? This was in 2002. Okay. Um, and then I was exposed to a ton of different businesses and different and entrepreneurs. And I quickly just got a taste for, oh, I would really like to try to start something myself. So I, I saw very clearly that it was much easier and safer and more lucrative to be an investor. But um, the passion that I saw in the entrepreneurs that I spoke to every day, it just felt like a much more fulfilling um, way to spend my time than on the investing side, which I enjoyed as well, but um, but I just sort of got a taste for I want to be an entrepreneur. Um, then in business school, I went to, um, I worked in China for my summer internship for a bank in China and finance, and um, I was just exposed to the pollution, which I had no previous exposure to, just the magnitude of how um, poor the air quality was. And I just saw, it, it, this was 2005, so it was really in the boom time in Shanghai, and you know, all the cranes and just all the development and it just, you know, very much the plundering of the earth, you know, kind of image. And so I just think all those life experiences, just my love for nature, the, my interest in entrepreneurship, um, my real, um, palpable feeling that the world needs, um, renewable energy sources. It just kind of allowed me to, in a moment with not a lot of rigor, not a lot of thought, jump into it and say, yeah, I'm in. So you jump in. What are some of the very first steps that you guys took? I mean, I, mm-hmm. starting like a coffee company, I, I can like understand <laughs> like basic elements of starting a coffee company, but starting a solar company? Yeah. <laughs> well, so, so I used a lot of my analytical skills and experience to, to start to learn more quickly. Um, and the first thing I did was uh, look at a network of Stanford alums who were in the energy industry and just started calling them and interviewing them and asking questions about, you know, hey, how viable is solar? Is it in your plan? You know, I was talking to utility executives, anybody who would really take my phone call out of the Stanford alumni database. And what I what I heard very clearly from everybody was, oh, it'll never work. There's, there's, you know, yep, solar is getting cheap, it's getting better, but there's so many sophisticated people doing this that, you know, be careful, you know, be, be careful. Like there's, you're not, you know, implying that I wasn't sophisticated or that I was young and naive or inexperienced in energy um, and that it wouldn't work. And how old but were you? In- I was 26, okay. probably. But they validated to me that there was a business opportunity. It's just the commentary was very much like, oh, no, but it's not for you. So that also kind of gets me going, <laughs> gets me motivated a little bit. And so I did that. Um, and then we started talking to potential customers. So some of the early customers that day of solar were universities, were, you know, other public schools, um, you know, governments, uh some businesses, some forward-thinking businesses. So we started calling customers, trying to understand what they wanted, what their needs were. And so it was really a lot of, I, you know, because it's, it was a nascent industry, there wasn't a lot of research to do. It was very first person, just kind of calling around anybody who would take your phone calls. So that's really how we got started. And then how did you take all of that market research that you were doing and then actually go that next step into launching a company? We just started... Um, selling the product you know so what we figured out fairly quickly was 
there's a lot of interest in solar, but there was a lot of complexity to it and there was a high upfront cost. And so the model that we came up with was, hey, people will switch to this if you can just make it easy. And if you can just turn it into a monthly bill, like what they're used to paying for energy, they'll adopt it. So we um, came up with a model where we would pay for the installation of the solar panels and just sign customers up to long-term contracts to buy the electricity for us. Um, and there were some early subsidies for it. So we could actually, you know, even though solar was fairly expensive 10 years ago compared to where it is now, we could sell electricity just for a slight premium versus what the utility company was um, selling it for, even with zero upfront cost for customers. But we had to get convinced consumers to sign up for a long-term contract, you know, because the business model from Sunrun's perspective was we had to pay, um, you know, $50,000 to install a system on a homeowner's house upfront. So the only way to recover that over time, if you're only billing a customer $150 a month, is to get them to sign a long-term contract. Yeah. So we had to launch the business by convincing people, hey, you know, work with this startup, sign a 20-year contract. That's where we are and still today our customers sign 20-year contracts um, to buy the electricity for us. And, um, and so we had to go out and convince a number of customers to do that. That, as you might imagine, was quite expensive because at $50,000 a pop, you're putting the cash out for that with these 20-year contracts that you're going to get the money back over time, but you have to find a way to finance that. And so then we had to go to um, banks to, to figure out how we could pool enough of our homeowners together um, to go to a bank to say, hey, can you give us a million or so dollars up front? We're going to, in return pledge you these, you know, 200 homeowners, they're, they're cash flows for the next 20 years. So it's a very, it was a financing um, model. And, and so what we had to do, which was in retrospect, quite risky, was spend all of our own money up front buying all these systems. So we funded the company ourselves uh, about $3 million um, to get started, which was, as you might imagine, a lot of our savings <laughs> uh, and didn't pay ourselves for quite a long time. Uh, and, uh, and then we're able to go out and raise capital from people that we had worked with before venture capitalists. So we raised uh, $7 million from venture capital firms. Um, but still, we were spending all of that equity capital to buy these projects. We did not have the project financing lined up. So we didn't have that bank financing lined up that was going to help us make the upfront cost, you know, and, and pledge the customer cash flows to pay back the bank. So we had to make a bet that we could get enough consumers to do that and that we could go to a bank and find someone to, to, to give us capital um, in order to make it a more sustainable business. And, and that was in 2007. And unfortunately, right when we had spent millions and millions of dollars, the market crashed. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was really quite stress, quite stressful, quite horrible time. Um, but we were able to finally get convince a bank who was not as exposed to the subprime crisis that you know we all remember from 2008, where they still um, you know, had capital available to even invest. And uh, we were able to convince US Bank um, to, to give us $40 million, um, which kept us going for, 
you know, the next year through the crisis and we developed track record and it, we proved that consumers wanted this, that people were paying their bills, that, you know, there was a deep market for this. And then from that point forward, we've been able to steadily attract um, the capital to finance the business. And, you know, now we're up to raising some more than $3 billion worth of that uh, capital over the last 10 years. So looking back at those early days, was there anything that you did that you would have done differently in setting up a company? Oh, I mean, Ed and I, Ed, who is my co-founder, we always laugh about it. You know, looking at it now, we're so happy we did it. But, you know, we, I remember looking at each other and just saying, we would not wish this company on our worst enemy. It was, it was that hard. Um, for, for many times, you know, through those early years, you know, but that's life. I'm, you know, I'm sure we all have experiences like that. So um, I don't know that we would have done anything differently, but um, we question our sanity having done it. I mean, had we known, you know, had we not been a little bit naive, I think, in what we were getting ourselves into, we would not have done it. Says it's every really, entrepreneur on the planet. <laughs> right. It's really the story. <laughs> um. So I'm curious from there, I mean, that's that's literally, it sounds like that's the first few years of the company. And then now you're talking about numbers in the terms of $3 billion. How the, the growth that you guys have experienced has just been tremendous. I'm curious around if you were able to distill the success of the company down into a couple bullet points. What do you mm-hmm. think that's been? Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, first, I'm a strong believer that you have to have a good, have, have a good market. And so you really need to understand what pain point you're solving for consumers or whoever your customer is for your customer and, um, and, uh, and, and then be able to build a business that can be somewhat difficult and has an entry barrier to it. So I'm a really big believer that you need, you know, those two dynamics. It's like, you know, force of will is not enough. <laughs> force of will and smart business skills are not enough. You know, you know, you gotta have the, but, but. You can have, you know, you can you can be prepared. I mean, you can do the work, you can do the the, the legwork on really understanding what the customer wants, um, and figuring out whether or not you're going to be in a unique position to deliver that um, in a defensible way. And and the way we were able to do that at Center and what I, um, you know, one of the important lessons we learned uh, was talking to the customer directly yourself, doing all of the the you know as. CEO or founder of the company doing the work to talk to the customer yourself, not hire a salesperson and have them do it and get the feedback because you're iterating so fast. And, and in order to make a bet on, am I going to you know, work for years without paying myself and put my savings into this and, and you know, have the passion when the days are really dark and the belief in order to really have that for me, it was important to me to have that personal conviction that I've talked to the customer, I see the need and I and I have the vision for what this can be. And and I think that was really key to to the success of the business and the growth of the business is, you know, that we're we got comfortable with that. The value proposition is strong enough for the consumer. And the alternative um, industry, the traditional utility industry, is letting people down. You know, they are still burning dirty fuel. Their prices continue to go up. They're run very inefficiently, you know, increasingly with extreme weather. Our aging grid and our aging infrastructure is crashing down and people are left without power. So it's, you know, what used to be 
viewed as, okay, I'm getting pretty reliable, cheap electricity. I don't think about it. You know, now people are saying, wait, you know, this has really let me down. Not only is it polluting, but it's, it's getting more expensive and it's not available. Um, and, you know, so we're really, um, you know, solving something that the existing industry is not set up to, um, to, to, to meet that, you know, that, that consumer need because they've had monopoly. So they've never had to talk to their customers. They've had, you know, you move into a home, you know who your electricity company is. You have no choice. And, uh, and you know, that's no longer the world that we live in. So I think that, so, so for me, the, the big lessons were, you know, make sure the industry dynamic, the setup is, is, is strong. Make sure you can build a defensible position where you bring something unique to, to, to meet the consumer need and then really deeply understand the consumer need and do the work yourself to understand it. So as part of this growth, you guys have gone public. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's this narrative kind of in the mission-driven space around sometimes an inability to go public because you're wanting to take into the, all of the needs of all of the stakeholders rather than just the needs of the shareholders. And I'm curious around how you're managing the tension of quarterly returns and mm-hmm. fiduciary duty and all of that with the values that you guys have as a company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so one one point of view I have is that I do think people overestimate this trade-off of short-term versus long-term. I don't think it's so stark and I don't think it's such a trade-off. I think, you know, I think that as long as you're consistent with your values, so I'll get into the value side there too, as long as you're consistent to your values, the decisions you make for short-term results are often the right ones for long-term results as well. And and I, I just reject out of hand that that's such a trade-off. So I actually think that much of the you know need to hit quarterly performance targets is healthy. It's you know it it makes us be better um, forecasters. It, it makes us um, make more sound you know short-term decisions. It keeps us on our toes. It makes us you know push harder and work faster. And, and that's what we need to do to fix you know some of these climate problems. We have to get renewable energy out there faster. And so in many ways you know I think that. The negatives of the quarterly pressure, and and there are there is a time sink around it. You know, you do have to spend. I, I do spend time with investors. You do have to, um, you know, spend time on the accounting and all of that. Those can be, you know, a little distraction, but the benefits far outweigh um, the the costs. I think um, for for quarterly management. Now, values are are really important though, and you can't compromise on on the values and, you know, and we've evolved our values over the years um, as well as, as um, you know, we've become a larger organization as the, as the business model has evolved, as we've evolved as leaders. And, you know, what's become really important to me um, is really focusing not, you know, I have a tendency to, I'm a very outcome driven person and, um, and you know that probably came through in some of my earlier comments about how I'm competitive. I like to win, and and I like outcomes, and and I believe that our mission is so important that we need the outcomes of more solar panels up, uh, you know, on more roofs. And uh, but what I've learned more over the years is to, you know, nourish the heart and the soul as well, you know, as deliver the outcomes. And um, and so I think. You know, personally, as a leader, and what I've tried to model, and what I've tried to build into the culture and the values 
of the organization, we've gotten we've we've gotten you know better and more attuned to that heart and soul, um, you know, part of the company and the people and the individuals who come to help deliver the mission. Do you have any specific practices that come to mind when you think about nourishing the heart and soul? Yeah, yeah, I do. You know, I think that um, part of it has been for me, you know, as an individual to really role model having fun, you know, and, and like a playfulness and a playful spirit. It's like, you know, and, and, and it can feel so serious, you know, your quarterly earnings, the planet, <laughs> um, you know, uh, signing a 20 year contract with a customer. Um, and, uh, but I've really come around to, you can make those fun, you can make them light, and, and sometimes I use that as a catch, actually, that if I find myself getting too serious, it's a catch for me to look into it a little bit deeper. Is there something, is there some fear in there? Well, you know, what's really going on with that? Like, how do we actually pull up and make this light? So you and I were actually introduced by Diana Chapman, um, who wrote 15 Commitments of a Conscious Leader, and I'm just curious around how her work has played into your leadership style mm-hmm. and how you see yourself as a conscious leader. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's, I think t- two of her pieces of advice have really been meaningful for me. One is to um, the concept of making clean, impeccable agreements. I think is extremely powerful and man it's it's powerful personally it's powerful in managing it's powerful in teaching young managers how to how to show up and how to um and how to work with their colleagues and building it into the culture of your company And, and really the concept that you know only only make commitments and only do things that you know you're gonna follow through on and I think that that is in this world I think it's so easy for people to say yeah 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 I'll get to it and they're even it's not even that it's they're wolf they're lying it's just they're lying to themselves maybe you know and and so I think one of the practices in that you know Diana um, talks about and shares in her book is this idea that if you make an agreement with somebody you keep it and if for some reason situations change and you can't you need to go renegotiate it and you need to actually clean it up don't let it just sit there because you let it just sit there and you promise things that weighs on people and you feel heavy and and i think it just and it and it's it's the opposite of being blight <laughs> um in your in your daily interactions and um and then once you force yourself to actually make those renegotiations you're more disciplined on what you actually, the agreements you make in the first place. You know, you're, you're more clean on them. And then you can operate as a company without having to check on people all the time. You operate where you know you've said something to someone else. You know they're going to go take care of it. You don't have to waste a lot of time or energy checking up on it um, because you know if they're not going to get around to it, they're going to come back to you and let you know. And I think that that eliminates so much of the politics um, and so much of the friction in, you know, how we do business. And, and it also makes you come home from work at night and feel lighter, you know, not feel weighed down by promises you made that you haven't followed through on. That doesn't feel good for anybody. Um, and uh, so that's been really influential. Another thing that's been influential is that my, 
you know, I'm a big believer in, you know, sort of like a daily mantra, you know, and, and when I do my morning reflection meditation, I always focus on the idea that all people in all circumstances are my allies. And, um, and that is one of her 15 commitments. And it's one that's been really meaningful for me. And so I approach, you know, all situations with that in the back of my head. And I remind myself of that frequently through the day. This episode is brought to you by SheEO. SheEO is a radically redesigned ecosystem that supports, finances, and celebrates female innovators. SheEO activators have contributed over $3 million in funding that has been loaned to over 55 separate companies. Learn more about how being a SheEO activator is shifting the landscape for women entrepreneurs at SheEO.world. That's SheEO.world. This episode is also brought to you by Visit.org a platform that makes managing your corporate social action programs efficient and seamless. With it, you'll gain access to social impact team experiences that benefit local ventures, build a fully customized giving back program, and use back office tools to increase productivity and match employee interests. Start giving back today with visit.org. So if I might be wrong, but I believe that you have a six-week-old uh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, and and so a three-year-old. Six-week-old, a three-year-old, um, and you're running a publicly traded company. Um, I have a story about that, that that is fairly stressful and filled with a lot of pressure. Um, I don't know if that's your experience of it, but I'm just curious around how do you manage your time? How do you manage your stress? How do you manage the pressure and still feel like you're able mm-hmm. to do all the things that you want to do? Mm-hmm. It's a good question. You know, I believe very much that getting to the integral kind of philosophy, like you need to nourish yourself. You need to nourish your mind. You need to nourish your spirituality. You need to nourish your body. Um, And, you know, you need to nourish all of those different dimensions. And you can't really ignore one of them because, you know, it's going to make the others fall apart. And so I have practices in each area that helped me. So, you know, for, as an example, for my body, I, um, I walk to work. So I live about three miles away in San Francisco. There's some hills. It can take a while. I can't do it every day, but I try to, I try to schedule phone calls or things in the morning so that it's productive time. But I, you know, try to get, I try to walk. Um, uh, I form, and I, you know, I'm also an active, um, I love sports, as I mentioned earlier. So I love to play, you know, tennis or or hike or even basketball, and and I like to stay active. Um, for the mind, I, um, you know, my work challenges my mind and keeps me busy there. But I also do a lot of reading and and you know, in philosophy, I love fiction, I love poetry. Um, so I, you know, do spend an hour or so at night, I probably don't sleep enough. Um, so that might be one area I need to work more on, but I do that every day. And on spirituality, I have a meditation practice that's been, um, you know, a huge life changer. And I think that, um, you know, so those have all have all really helped me. So I'm curious, as you look back on this unbelievable company that you built, um, if you were able to have two to three lessons that you would provide for other business leaders, what would they be? I think the lessons I would offer would be 
you know, one, deeply understanding your customer and the need that you're solving. And, you know, and, and, um, and that means getting out there and having the conversations yourself. And that helps give you the conviction when you need it in the really dark times. I, I would find, I, I can't imagine how you can get through some of the challenging times that all entrepreneurs go through without, you know, having that first person deep, you know, conviction and, and commitment to the mission of what you're trying to build. That, that's one. I, I think also a whole different, you know, outlook on failure. And, you know, this also can sound somewhat trite, you know, because it's popularly mentioned, but there's a reason probably why it is. But, you know, if you're, if you work hard and you're ethical in everything that you do, then, you know, failing is an ally for you in my mind. Um, and, uh, and, and so you don't have to be afraid of that. Uh, and then, and then finally, the other lesson is don't, don't, you know, don't take things too seriously. Have some lightness in what you do and, and enjoy the process. You know, it's not just only about, um, about the outcomes. And that, that's a lesson. That, that's my personal lesson. And I think everybody figures out their own personal lesson and their own, you know, trigger issues and, you know, how, how what they're inclined in. And because I am so inclined towards outcomes, um, that's a lesson that I, I work on daily is to enjoy it along the way a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So in, in your first lesson there, you mentioned the dark times. And I'm curious if there's anything that you're struggling with right now as a business leader, or anything that's keeping you up at night besides a six week old. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Uh, lack of sleep for sure. <laughs> What the most central issue for me right now is that we are in a in the utility industry in the United States. It's a we're in a tricky spot because the the industry really has not innovated much in a hundred years, and it's been built around this monopoly structure where we built these fossil fuel plants and this infrastructure to have big centralized power plants that have been invested in and should be living for 20, 30, 40 more years, but we can't afford to continue to burn that fuel for that long yet. There are people to pay for, you know, their investors in those, in those plants. The whole, there's a lot of costs invested in this infrastructure of poles and wires and transmission lines. And so, and so, yet at the same time, renewables are becoming the most cost-effective resource. They are offering the ability to move the energy system from a centralized system to a decentralized system where you have solar panels on roofs and a battery in your garage, and you can serve your own needs, and it can withstand um, hurricanes like in Puerto Rico. I mean, we're, we're seeing the risks of it in places like Puerto Rico um, where, you know, it, people can be wiped out without power and it can be, it causes deaths. I mean, this is serious stuff. But, you know, you, I, I appreciate the pressure that utility executives are under, which are, we need to deliver power reliably to everybody. We have all this investment in this old way of doing things. How do we reconcile that with the, these new ability for consumers to more cost-effectively put solar panels up on their rooftops? And, um, and the challenge that I have right now is how do we get 
everybody to operate from a place up of abundance of of optimism of win-win versus it having to be a zero-sum game and hey we're in trouble you know renewables we can't do it too fast because you know it's it, it, we're not going to be able to deliver a reliable service um because poor people can't get it you know so there's all these scare there's all these fears and and so how do you break through that and get both parties to the table to try to bring what everybody in society I think wants which is clean and affordable energy and that's a huge challenge right now for for us for the country and like speaking of the utility industry and where you guys are going in the future I'm curious if you have any predictions for the future of solar and mm-hmm. the future of renewable energy at mm-hmm. large well I think that it will I think it's going to happen faster than than people exist and so there's this there's a, there are a lot of fears that hey if we go to 100% renewables which are targets that many states and cities and and people have put out there that it somehow is going to cost so much more money and deliver an, an uh, unreliable service. And I don't believe that that will be the case. I think that we're innovating so quickly on storage technology, on batteries, um, as one really promising example, that we're going to be able to, you know, one, we can already produce power from the sun and the wind cheaper than fossil fuels. The challenge is that it can be intermittent. It's when the sun is shining or when the wind is blowing. But the storage technology is getting competitive enough, fast enough, um, that I think we'll be able to solve those problems much faster than, um, you know, people are anticipating. So, you know, it used to, people would never have guessed that you could, you know, charge your cell phone so fast. You know, batteries are changing so quickly that I, you know, I'm optimistic that we'll be able to solve it. That the incumbency and and politics are going to be like the barrier not necessarily the technology I don't think or the consumer's willingness or desire to do it so that's why I'm optimistic that we can break through that but at the same time that's what that's the biggest challenge I think that I'm facing as a business leader is how do you break through that because it is not an easy problem and there's a lot of you know there's over a trillion dollars of invested capital in our existing energy system. It is, you know, big dollars. I I think it's Lynn Twist. Um, She talked to me about how do we hospice these old systems with grace and compassion and like Mm. let them die. These like a beautiful death that needs to happen. Um, So I think about that sometimes for the utility industry and how that's gonna happen. Um, That's interesting language. I like that, that's beautiful. Um, So I wanna move to just a couple personal questions. Um, I'm curious for you if you can talk to me about a life-changing moment that you've had. I think there was a period of time, you know, in the company's history, this is probably about 2012, 2015, so halfway in, five years in, to the company where, you know, I I think I was still very much operating from a more traditional business standpoint, you know, very brute force, outcome-driven, yeah, and and the it, we weren't growing quite as fast that year so we had some you know pressures on the performance of the business you know some of the my leadership team and new executives that we had brought in um you know i could tell didn't really have the confidence in the business or even in me as a leader and i was doubting that myself 
Um, and and so that was a really challenging period where I, I challenged myself to say, okay, what I'm doing, what I've done historically isn't going to get me or the company to where we need to go going forward. And it was it was very, very challenging. And, and you know, I, I think there were some, you know, toxic people that I maybe tolerated, you know, longer than I should have for, for reasons of fear, you know, how, how can we do it without these people? I think I hadn't evolved into figuring out how to be a real conscious leader or figuring out my own personal style. You know, I was so young when I started the company. I was 27 when I started the company. I never managed a person. I had never been at a company. I was an investor. Um, and so I had zero, you know, role models. So it was a it was a time where I had to say like, okay, do I want to do this? Because it, it felt very much like a crossroads. Like, can I do it? Do I want to do it? Is the company better served with a more experienced leader? Um, um, is this is this is this a good match for my skills and and what I what I value? And and I came to the conclusion after a lot of reflection and thinking and reading and talking to mentors and friends and family um, that I did and I could and but that was a really painful period of time. I had to change you know some of the people in the in, in the in the company um, you know which felt like taking on a lot of risk at a time period where the business wasn't growing as fast where it was a more challenging you know business you know, you know outlook and and uh, and uh, it significantly changed how I viewed my role as a leader. So one thing that I am hearing throughout this interview is kind of this, um, with this commitment to be more of a conscious leader there. For me, conscious leadership is rooted in more feminine values. Um, and you are a female leader in a predominantly male-led industry. And I'm curious around how have you been able to navigate mm-hmm. the fact that I'm of course, again, I have a story that many times you're the only woman in the room or you're the only room at the, woman at the table. How have you been able to navigate that? Yeah, I, I think that is interesting because I think that I have evolved to appreciate those feminine qualities more and expose them more in myself. So if, if you know, you're hearing my story and my answers to some of the previous questions, um, I do excel and have a history of excelling in the traditional male qualities you know competitiveness athleticism dominance independence you know all of those things i i have um those are some qualities that i i was born with i think and that i've cultivated over the years and uh and um what i've become more in touch with and started to appreciate more are the feminine qualities that I have as well and that I can bring out in others and um, and to just not be afraid of that at all. Um, and, uh, and I had a really formative observation when I was in my investing business because I was, that was very male dominated, probably even more so than the, than the um, energy industry where I think there's no, um, there's there's no lack of appreciation for Silicon Valley in particular venture capital is, is very probably the most significantly male dominated industry and that's where I was in my early career and but I remember that the most successful 
investors that I observed and the people that I respected the most were, had the feminine qualities. It was, it was quite interesting. The people that really stood out were the ones that could build a little bit more of a community and be less of an individual, be less of just a name in my venture capital firm, but build a real community around um, and a real institution around their investment philosophy and the people that they were able to attract. And that they would also not be afraid to not know the answer. And I thought that was so powerful that, you know, you and and I and I view many of those qualities as as qualities that are more traditionally on the feminine side. Mm-hmm. You know, that ability to to ask questions and understand the intention and not be afraid to, you know, to say you don't know the answer and to build community. And um, and so it was interesting in that I saw that in the investing world that the most successful men embody that. Mm-hmm. And that helped in some way. I wish it, I mean, I'm almost shameful to say this, but like that helped encourage me that, okay, I see it in this, you know, trusted way that these these people are successful that okay there's something there you know it's safe it's safe to get more in touch with that so you know I I I say that sheepishly because it's kind of embarrassing um you know that that's that's how I came to it but that was my personal experience I'm curious around what are like maybe one or two of those feminine values for you that you're finding that you've been cultivating that have been successful? There's a lot. You know, one of the other one of the other observations I have about women that I've observed, patterns that I've seen, are that women often they're not the loudest people in the room. And and they can be underestimated in that way. But there's a skill that they have to really see the gaps and pick up the pieces and make sure that nothing like falls apart. And I, I think I, you see it in like families. It's like, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, my husband and I always have the argument about, you know, it's not, the work is not making the list of things to do for the family or, or doing half of the list of, of the things to do for them. It's making the list. It's like actually having the, the work, the worry work, you know, as they say. And, and so, I see that in business too. And, and so one of the skills I think, I, and something that I really look out for is who are the people who are really doing the worry work that are maybe more quiet, that aren't front and center, um, and really helping to like draw those people out and like cultivate them to um, you know, bring that strength out, but then also help cultivate some of the values that you know, get them more success by being a little bit more outspoken by putting not being afraid to like put their name on something by not being afraid to challenge someone to say hey look I I'm doing this so I want the credit for it I'm doing this so I want the title for it you know where I see a pattern in a lot of women where they don't maybe ask for that or or take seek credit for what they're doing maybe they don't have confidence that they can do it so it's like but the pattern that I would see more often out of a men is, men is they're going to ask for it first, even if they maybe don't have confidence that they're doing it. <laughs> and so I really try to be aware of that dynamic and make sure that um, we're the talent allocate that we're, I'm being smart about the talent allocation and not just the loud people. Excellent. So the last question, mm-hmm. what is giving you hope for the future? I am very hopeful that 
the environment and moving towards renewable energy is a unifying is a unifying goal for humanity. I think it's so interesting when you look at the research in in the world right now where we're you know so politicized and and the environment and renewable energy is kind of a political topic yet you know if you look at any of the research 80% of people believe we should move towards renewable energy and i just don't know of any other you know sort of political issue out there that has so much one-sided public support and I'm really hopeful that it can be, you know, the, this, these horrible climate change challenges that we're facing can be a real unifying force for humanity. A huge thanks this week to Lynn Jurek and the entire team over at Sunrun. The World Changing Women podcast is brought to you by Conscious Company Media and is produced by StoryPop Media. If you like what you're hearing, we'd be so grateful if you tell a friend about the show. And be sure to subscribe to get the latest episode. Thanks so much for listening. A Story Pop Media Production.